this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. Try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code RIOT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 98, and we're recording on Tuesday, March 24th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Amanda Nelson. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. This is, we're delayed. We are. It's, we're well, very out of sync. You had reasons. Yeah, it was a, it was a crazy week last week for a lot of reasons. Um, my kids were sick and stuff going on, and uh, so we're delayed. So it's kind of, we're kind of off, um, but now we're back on. Uh, so I, I want to say first, thanks. Um, we got a lot of really positive, supportive feedback from our last show, uh, in which we talked about all the feelings and, uh, <laughs> all the perspectives. Um, and I don't think there's much more to say about it than, uh, uh, than that. Um, we, you know, out of all of it, it's interesting. We did write up some new community guidelines for the site, mm-hmm. um, for commenting that aren't that much different, really. They're really not. <laughs> no, uh, cause it, was, it used to, basically we said in the, the old one was if you call someone a name. Or you insulted someone, um, you get banned, or your comment deleted, or if you did self-promotional content, right? Like right. you know, you posted spam. your spam, and that still is true. But the the ba- the new change is basically we said that you know we sort of made some of our more overt values overt or explicit, which is you know we believe in social justice and. Um, talking about sexism and racism and these sorts of things. And you don't have to agree with us about those things, but you have to respect that we believe that. And yeah. we're just not going to have the sexism is real conversation over and over again. No. Um, it's just not, not interested in doing that. Uh, if you care enough to fight someone about that, get a blog. Um, but, you know, that's not something we want to host. Um, and you know, I think we took it pretty seriously thinking about those guidelines again, right? I mean, we didn't uh, yeah, do we thought about nilly. it for forever. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a... Whatever. We didn't yeah. jump the gun with that we didn't, decision. We didn't jump the gun. So if, if basically now it's – the difference really is if you comment – so you, podcast listeners are beautiful, unique snowflakes that are charming and um, judicious and would never do anything like <laughs> this. But if a commenter comes on and, you know, we talk about, say uh, – let's see. I'm trying to think of a classic example. Like, oh, we, we did this one. This is a real comment. It was on the best books uh, – f- best – Feminist books for young readers. I can't remember if that was the title exactly. Uh-huh. Um, no, no, I'm sorry, wrong one. It was um, when the the character in a movie adaptation is worse than the character in the book. Oh yes, yeah. yes. And someone commented, "Why does everything have to be about feminism?" Delete. No, that was it. And so under our old guidelines, that's not something we. I mean, we can delete whatever we want. Like this is not the law. <laughs> but like we like to stick to the rules we've stated. So under our own guidelines, that's not a name call or an insult, but it's also not something we want on the site. And so basically we came out as like, what is that? Basically that's saying that 
shut up about feminism. <laughs> yeah. That's basically what that is saying. Well, I think about the most in how it will be most useful. We had this uh, one commenter who was banned and has been banned for a while, but under the old guidelines, every time one of our contributors who identified as LGBTQ would write a post about that that included mm. anything about their identity, this commenter would say, well, when is Book Riot going to have a straight pride book list? Or right. why is Book Riot always shoving the homosexual agenda down our throats and all of that? And, and technically they weren't. Mm-hmm you know, overtly attacking a, a person or calling anybody names. And so we let it stand for so long. And then finally yeah. we had a reason to get rid of it. But under this new comment policy, I, I'm just not going to have that. Yeah. And so we didn't like, we weren't comfortable with having it there. And yeah, no. the, the most important thing for us is that our writers and readers feel safe and good about reading the comments and contributing. Um, it also gives us some leeway because we, we would get into a habit or I'll speak for myself, of when someone would leave something like that, I'd want to challenge it, right? I just don't, yeah. I don't know about how you feel. I don't think we've ever really talked about this, but if someone reads just like a turd comment like that, that's not really like a violation and we just have to sit with it, I just can't let it sit there unchallenged. Yeah. And so one of us, you know, usually will respond and then we get into a thing and then <laughs> we don't look good necessarily, even though I think we're coming from a really good place and they don't look, it just, and then we're mudding up this thing that's not even about the thing that, you know, so it's like, yeah. This just makes it a lot simpler, um, and it's interesting because we got in we in our in our internal discussion we got a lot into about the ethics of commenting and what we want and what we don't want, and um, you know I'm I'm someone that believes that if if someone says don't read the comments about your site that's not the that's not the internet's fault that's your fault yeah I agree um, so hopefully uh, this is something that is going to be help us feel better about what we do and uh, make people. Um, if they want to comment in good faith, then this gives them all the latitude in the world. And if they don't, we can get rid of their comments or them if they really get nasty. So uh, anyway, that's one thing that came out of it um, is to put a little bit of what our values are on our sleeve. And and again, you don't have to believe those things to um, to comment or listen to, um, but you certainly have to like think of them as legitimate concerns that people have. All right. So enough moralizing. Um <laughs> There's that. Last call for episode 100 questions. This is episode 98. Probably you and Rebecca and I are going to record the 100th episode in the next couple of weeks sometime. Yeah. So I'm going to say by you got to get us your questions by March 30th um, to have them be considered. We've got some good ones, but we could take some more. Um, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got some good questions. A lot of tattoos and Toni Morrison, which we, can, <laughs> uh, we could go around and round for uh, eons about that. One last thing. Oh, where should they send the questions? Oh, uh, yeah, podcast at bookwright.com. Okay. You can always send us questions or comments there. Uh, they don't even have to be respectful because we can't delete you. Uh, <laughs> Your <laughs> no. entire email could just be, what <laughs> yeah. is sexism? Yeah. We actually, Alex built a really great button for us that uh, we could get rid of your right to email. If, anyway. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, Bookwright Live tickets went on sale March 10th. This is our second time to talk to you since they've been on sale. The first 250 are $119, so it's a $50 discount. After that, they're $169. Those We're running out of those. Yes. We've got about 75-ish, I think, left. I'm not sure um, the last time. So probably within the next week or two, those are going to be gone. The other thing that there's a special event Saturday night at the Strand, which is after hours of the main event, but it's a wine special event in the rare book of the Strand, smaller group. It's 160 tickets. Those tickets are 40 bucks if you want to come to an extra thing. And half of those are gone already. 
which we didn't anticipate. Who doesn't want to drink in the rare book room? We're we're going to be there. A lot of us are going to be there, a more (laughs) intimate setting. So that is something that if you don't have the time or really don't want to come to commit to two full days, you can buy that ticket separately or in addition to. So if you buy that, if you buy a strand ticket and a main ticket right now, that's less than it will cost you to get into just the show um, by the time the early bird tickets are gone. So uh, I've heard from a lot of you uh, that are on the the bandwagon early, and we're so excited to to meet you and hang out and be book nerds together for uh, for a couple of days. All right, enough preamble. Let's get to our first sponsor. (laughs) It's Random House Audiobooks. It's it's gar. I keep people are telling me it's spring. I've heard (laughs) garbage. (laughs) It's 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 rubbish. Um, This uh, March continues to be leonine here in New York City. How is it in Richmond? Is it warming up? Are you having some nice days? Yeah, it's like 60 degrees here. Oh, that's nice. I would kill for that. It was 25 degrees when I walked the kids to school uh, this morning. Uh, uh, um, and I hated every step of it. So anyway, so so in this theoretical idea of spring, people garden. And <laughs> Random House Audiobooks is, is reminding people, and maybe you don't even know, that gardening is a great opportunity to listen to audiobooks. You're outside, but it's also, it's not something that really you need a whole lot of brain power to do. I'm sure if you're in the higher echelons of gardening, maybe you have to do a bunch of thinking. But um, (laughs) for most amateur gardeners, um, it's something that's relaxing. It's a way to be outdoors in the sunshine. But it's also a really good opportunity to have an experience with a book. Uh, And you're getting out your hands dirty. You could do a bestseller. So go to tryoutaudiobooks.com and they have some suggestions for things to listen to while you're gardening. Um, the special URL is tryaudiobooks.com slash gardening. Um, it's interesting. I, I, we talked about this, they were sponsored last week or the week before. I don't really remember, but, um, had a couple of readers say, you know, books about, you know, nature and food would be a good idea. I was like, mm-hmm. duh, you were the rightest person in the world. <laughs> and someone was especially saying, you know, Michael Pollan's books might be good. Oh, um, yeah. you read about food a lot or did at one point, do you still like to read nonfiction about food? I got into well, I read a lot of nonfiction about like everything farming. <laughs> oh, farming, right? Like hobby farming. That's right. I forgot we've talked about this before. Yeah. Did you ever get people. your chickens? No, I haven't yet. I haven't. What's the holdup? My husband is hesitant about the chickens. He actually wanted to do bees before chickens, but oh. I am hesitant about bees. Right, because of the just, stinging. Because of the pain. Yeah, the right. pain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm I'm still I'm still solidly team chicken. Oh, okay, yeah. I I'm uh, I'm team neither. I think <laughs> for me, especially in a Brooklyn apartment, keeping bees in your apartment seems like a super bad idea. Put them on the roof. That's what they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, on the roof, really? Yeah. Well, we're running out of bees. I guess we need more, right? Like that's you, yeah. We could we have some more. All right. So do you have so you've you've done some about um, gardening? I I don't think I've ever read a really good food book, but um, that's one that you might try. Um, I'm listening to I'm as you as I've talked about before on the show. I'm in my year of audiobooks and mm-hmm. my year of nonfiction. Um, the Random House uh, title I'm listening to right now, I just started this morning. It's Becoming Steve Jobs um, from oh. Crown Business. I've heard a lot of good things about it. I'm not I'm not sort of a a tech biography guru, superstar biography kind of person. Like, I don't really care about <laughs> Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or anything. What interested me about this is Walter Isaacs, uh, in the last couple of years of Steve Jobs' life, he basically handpicked Walter Isaacson to write his biography, his authorized biography that came out, I think, just after he died, uh, which has been a few years now. Um, and by from what I've heard, that it's not a great biography for a lot of the reasons you might expect, because, you know, it's Steve had a lot of hands on it. Isaacson, I think, felt 
maybe more consideration to, I don't know, portraying him in a certain way. Um, but it, it, it roundly got sort of panned, and by Apple especially, like the Apple, like Tim Cook and Eddie Q and a lot of the people that are bigwigs at Apple um, really didn't like it. So I don't know if exactly if they got all together to, to contribute to this book, but the earlier, like there's a blurb from Ed Catmull who worked with Steve Jobs at Pixar. Pixar, yeah. Um, and they were really, they, you know, they worked intimately together for decades. There's a blurb on this book from Catmull. Eddie Q is raving about it. Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple, is raving about it. And they all participated sort of, you know, willingly and openly. Um, and the author, it's, a, it's by a pair of authors um, who work together. Um, the the main guy, I can't remember his name right now, but uh, he's a journalist, a tech journalist who, you know, was interviewed, had a, had a professional relationship with Jobs for 25 years. So knew him well in a lot of different settings. And so far, it's really interesting. Um, and I'm sort of more interested in the push me, pull you between the two books than I am. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm interested in technology and I use Apple stuff, but like, I'm, I'm kind of more fascinated by the, the backstory of how this book came to be. So that's what I'm uh, listening to right now. So go to tryaudiobooks.com. Guard slash gardening. Try something else. See what's out there. I would think, you know, uh, fiction, you know, like, I think like a page turning. I, we don't have an audio word for page turning. Um, but Cross a head forwarding? Yeah, that work. No, that's not right. It's yeah. the sort of stay in your car, keep doing the activity you're doing so you can listen to the audiobook a little longer. Yeah. Um, that seems like it'd be a lot of fun. So thanks so much to Random House Audiobooks and tryaudiobooks.com for sponsoring this week's show. Um, this is a little bit of follow-up uh, just from uh, the news that Terry Pratchett passed away. I guess it's been a couple weeks now. Mm-hmm. And the final Discworld novel apparently was ready to go. And it's coming out this fall. Woohoo! Which um, I asked you before the show, you have, you have not read Terry Pratchett either. I've not. I'm so overwhelmed by yeah. all of the everything. The Discworld universe scares me. Yeah. We, we got a lot of suggestions about where to start because Shinsky and I, neither of us have read Pratchett, though it seems like something I would like, especially if, when I was 15, which I'm sort of still 15 in a way. <laughs> times two plus times two. Plus two. Um, so that new one's coming out for Terry Pratchett fans. I'm going to pick something up. I don't know what exactly. Um a lot of people said, ah, it doesn't matter. Just pick one. Well, I, I, I don't like that. I don't, I don't, like, I don't that like that either. I want to know what number one is, but yeah. there is no number one really. There isn't. There isn't. It's not a, it's not a chronology. It's the, it's the universe. And they're basically, you know, standalone stories. Um, it's not like Harry Potter or Game of Thrones or something like that where there's a thoroughgoing narrative, which is kind of cool, but um, hard to jump in. So that will be the, the last gasp of Discworld. Um, all right. I guess the big, the big sort of tech, industry news from last week was that Rakuten bought Overdrive. Uh, Overdrive being the digital book distribution platform that, I don't know, is it the only one that we know of that libraries use in America? Like, it's the one. It's the only one that I know of, It's yeah. the only one I know of, too. Um, and it's, it was an independent company. It was bought for $410 million, so not a small amount of change. Um, and Rakuten, you may or may not know and probably don't, is like the Amazon of Japan. Yeah. And they're the parent company. They own Kobo, who's been a sponsor of the show, and a lot of people know Kobo books as well. Um, so it's a really interesting sort of uh, play. You know, I think one thing it does is it gives Kobo access to all of those users. Um, right. I hope from someone who has tried to use Overdrive before that a little of the beauty and simplicity of Kobo's e-reading system uh, filters its way back into Overdrive. Um, both you, Both you and I have been... Openly critical of the user experience of uh, 
of overdrive, right? I mean, I'm not remember. I'm not uh, misremembering. Oh no, I hate it. I mean, I use it, but I hate it. (laughs) Do you still use it, or you're you're done? You do, yeah. And what's the principal frustration for you? It's been two years since I've tried it, so I've kind of forgotten. It's just confusing initially. I mean, I I understand how to use it now. I've been using it for so long, but when you first get it, you have to figure out how to log into your library, and which is kept on a separate place in right. the app from where your bookshelves are, which is like separate from where your downloads are. It's just Ugh. like it's a scattershot or it's not organized. It's just not pretty. It's not yeah. elegant. It's not elegant, Jeff. It's not <laughs> elegant. I like elegant things. There's no doubt yeah. about that. And I guess we sort of wanted to work, work more like a regular e-reading app like Kobo or Kindle app or the iBooks app where it's like, here's your library. Yes, if like, it just integrated automatically with your yeah. library, with your library catalog. I want it to look like Oyster, basically. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, Oyster is. Di- I mean, the difference of Oyster is you don't. I mean, there's no expiry, which I guess you right. have with Overdrive. But that didn't seem like that would be hard to do. Like in my, um, you know, in my uh, iBooks app, if I haven't downloaded, it's sort of grayed out. And it just, you know, there's like a little button to to re-download this on this device. I mean, I own those files, so it's a little bit different. But it seems like, you know, it could have everything you've ever checked out, you know, in your history or things that you have checked out now and like an expiration date a bit and a couple of, you know, modal dialogue. But it doesn't seem, I guess what I'm saying, it doesn't seem like it should be as bad as it is. Yeah. Um, And maybe in an effort to uh, standardize all of their e-reading platforms, they'll they'll kind of make an overhaul there. That's the, the hope at least. Um, I, I would, the one concern I do have, even not as an overdrive user, but for ebook readers, um, that use their overdrive systems is that, are they going to play nice with Amazon? Are you going to be, do you know, I mean, like, I don't know, maybe you just, I just worry when these giant tech companies, um, start to get into spaces that compete that usually it's the consumer that loses, right? Well, what do you mean? Like how, wait, what? Explain that. Well, I mean, nice some, over, like, some overdrive, you can read Kindle editions. Oh, okay. Like, are they really going to support their competitor? Probably like no. That? Yeah, no. I mean, it's kind of like when uh, Amazon bought Comixology and you could no longer buy directly in, you know, your iOS app on your iPad or iPhone or things like that. So, you know, because they, they want to make, they don't want to make it easy for Apple to, to enjoy the fruits of their labor. So that's one thing I, I would wonder about. Um, it's though, interesting that they say that the addition of Overdrive, Rakuten's addition of Overdrive, will push its ebook business close to break even. I saw that too. <laughs> like, like it wasn't at break even. Okay. Yeah. You know, and it's weird. Like Amazon also doesn't break out their earnings by sector really. Um, like they, they never tell you how many Kindles they sell or anything like that. Okay. We don't even know if Amazon's ebook business is a profitable business. I mean, Amazon itself doesn't make money. Right. You know, this is one of the, the recurring themes is like they're always sort of they're always reinvesting all of their money back into whatever and they never actually make a profit. Well, are they making money off ebooks or is it just a lost leader so that you'll buy the dog food? Or are they making money off anything? Like it's very confusing a little bit for all the hype about audiobooks. And they've made a huge difference, especially for publishers. Um, their bottom lines have gotten fatter from them, especially that the actual retailers don't seem to be making that much money. I mean, Nook is a huge. I mean, Nook is a huge burden on Barnes and Noble to the fact to the point that they're spinning it out. Um, I think Apple thinks of iBooks as a loss leader just to make something you know make it so you can iPad is more attractive. Uh, I'm sure Google Play is a loss leader for Android. So it, selling eBooks might actually be an aggregate a losing business. Yeah. Um, so close to break even is not is not good. Uh, I I wouldn't think there. So that that's a big one. If you're an OverDrive user. And 
it probably won't happen sooner, but uh, but maybe at some point you're going to start to see changes. And if you do see that, um, please let us know. I'd, I'd surely like to hear about what's happening there. Okay, so that's something that did happen, something that might happen. Um, I'm finding this, I mean, maybe libraries have been in a constant state of flux for since there was a word for libraries, but it does <laughs> seem, especially these days, that there's a lot more public discourse where I'm just paying more attention to libraries thinking about themselves, especially, yeah. and what they should be doing or want to do. Um, and this newest one, there's almost too many to link to or talk about. So it's, it's, it's an unusual one that gets on the show. But this one is in Salt Lake City. Um, the Salt Lake City Public Library recently launched an online survey to gather input on what residents would like to see if it opened an around the clock, if it was opened 24 hours. That would be cool. Um, <laughs> an idea that started when the Downtown Alliance asked if the library could serve as a destination for homeless teenagers after hours. Um, wow. I mean, it's so interesting. Right. It says this is the first of its like a twenty-four hour library. This would be the first twenty-four hour library of its kind in the nation. That can't be right. Are there really no other like twenty-four hour public libraries? I don't. I mean, think I know so. university libraries are often. Yeah, um, you like um, Butler Library at my alma mater, Columbia. It, during finals, is open twenty-four hours, but yeah, not same most of the time. Um, but I, I don't think I've never heard of it. Uh, it yeah, makes a lot. Either. It makes a lot of sense to me for a lot of reasons. Um, what do you think? I think it's. A, I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, I never would have thought about doing it specifically to serve yeah. homeless teenagers. But I mean, mm-hmm. that's of course a lovely and great thing yeah. to do. So if they have nowhere else to go, well, this says that they couldn't say it's just for homeless people after right. hours because it violates the library's mission of serving all constituencies, which kind of makes a degree of sense, right? Um, but you got to th- wonder who's going to be at the library at three o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night. Um, right. But it does. But it does to some degree. Like most libraries during the week close at six, right? Like mm-hmm. six is. But a lot of people work. You know, like what if you want to go to the library for your evening hours? Like that's something. Well, especially when I didn't have kids, like that's something <laughs> I might have thought about, right? With a public library, like go have dinner and then go hang out at the library for a couple hours. Oh yeah, I totally. Like that would have been awesome. Um, and then you know, some people work. Or, you know, they have odd hours or, you know, maybe there's going to be a market for people at four or five in the morning. You know, go before work for a little while. There's a lot of early risers, people that work odd shifts and odd hours. Um, and the traditional business hours of a library, in addition to weekend hours, may not, you know, and then le- then weekends are usually more crowded for people. Um, I think it makes all kinds of sense. Uh, I'm sure it'll be, staffing will be tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in that graveyard shift, you know, I, I don't know how they'll do shifting. Graveyard and like, shift at a library. Li- a I don't library. know. You could get a lot of like children's books out of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah they definitely could. <laughs> you could totally write a bunch of, of children's adventure books. Yeah. But the buildings um, are there and the collections are there. And as people more and more think about library as public and community spaces, like. Yes, exactly. That's people's needs don't go away at 6 p.m. Like the in this article, that one of the count, the city councilwomen uh, said it's an interesting idea to explore, but a bad idea to pursue because she's just afraid that the library will end up filled with homeless people all night, and she doesn't think that's an appropriate way to spend hmm. uh, money. But I think like as libraries, they're not obviously they're not becoming irrelevant, but they're right. coming relevant. They're becoming more relevant to communities in different ways. Differently as, relevant, yeah, right. Yes, as community centers. And not just a place where you go to check out a book from nine to five. And so I don't necessarily think that like the fear that the facility will be filled with homeless people is a bad thing. 
Well, Especially I mean, if you think about libraries. In, yeah, I mean, and what's so wrong with homeless people? Like, right, right. Yeah. Like, not in your backyard. Yeah, you right. Out of whatever. <laughs> the other thing it suggests is maybe you should just build some homeless shelters. Or, it's I true. mean, maybe you should build some dedicated spaces. I mean, you know, I know, I know something I, you know, Michelle and I, have, Michelle has done a lot of work with homeless people in the past, too. It's something she cares about. But, you know, this is a symptom of that we just don't care about homeless people. It's like, where can we put them? Well, the library's sitting there. You know, it's not really the li- yeah. it's not really the library's job, and maybe that's not to say it shouldn't be, or maybe could make some accommodation. But you know, like if maybe you should try to solve the problem instead of just putting the problem somewhere else. Yeah, I agree, but it is kind of I. Mm, it is the library's job. I mean, it's not technically the library's job, right? But, I, you know, I mean, you right. can talk to any public librarian; they're going to say that they've probably got a quote unquote like homeless problem. Like people, homeless people, hang out in the libraries yeah. at all hours. Yeah, right. And so it's not going to change just because the hours are different. Yeah, but it's it's librarians aren't set up to be social workers. Social right? workers, yeah, and absolutely. we've done a story before where the you know a library, I think in um, the great state of Virginia, was working, thinking of having a social worker in the library. Had one, maybe it was DC, it was DC actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say it couldn't be this space, but it's kind of like it's the default place for homeless people to go because it's open to the public, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so without giving the lib- libraries the support they need to do a good job with it, it feels unfair to me um, yeah, that's to true. ask that's librarians true. to do it. Uh, but, you know, maybe there could be some additional space or additional resources or, you know, whatever it would take to make it um, a valuable experience. Um I think even maybe even putting the the social work aspect to the side, but just making them sort of even it wouldn't have to be maybe it wouldn't even be all night. But like, what if the hours were six a.m. to midnight for a library? Mm-hmm. You know, to, to to capture more people's free time when they could be there. Um, a lot of libraries, um, the library in my home, uh, my home city of Lawrence, Kansas, has embraced sort of this kind of maker space, creative collaboration. You're not necessarily using the collection, but you're using the space and the connection and um, some place where you can do work on your own, especially as more people are doing freelances and have side projects or sort of underemployed. They're trying to do things on their own. And as both you and I know, it's not always easy to get work done <laughs> at yeah. home or, you know, mm-hmm. or even conducive to do that. And not everyone has a dedicated space or they have family conditions at home that make it extremely difficult. So I think that might be something that for libraries to think about outside of, you know, serving this other particular population. Um, maybe they should do that. Maybe they shouldn't. But even the idea of keeping the library open, you know, like McDonald's hours or something, you know, like, <laughs> like, something Star- like that. Starbucks hours? Starbucks. Well, there you go. What are the Starbucks open? It's like 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. usually. Something like that? Well, around here, it's like 8 p.m., but, you know. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. People go to um, bed early down here. Oh, they go to bed early? <laughs> um, so that's, that's something to think about. If you've, got, if you've got thoughts about that, I'd like to hear them on podcastatbookriot.com, or you can hit us on Twitter or something like, something like that. If you'd use the library in off hours. It sounds like you might. Oh, I totally would. Well, maybe not now when my children yeah. are four, but I would have before I had kids, and when my kids get older, I could see. Like after dinner, going to the library, yeah. work nights or something like that. Like, well, early, I mean, for for us, an early open, like if it was open at 6.30, like we're oh, up Oh, I at, would be there, yeah, totally. Yeah, the kids and I would, would go down um, for sure someday. So that that's that's definitely the evolving role of library is something to keep an eye on. Okay, let's see, where are we going? Oh, this is interesting. Um, and part of the interest is I don't know what's happening. Yeah, yeah um, I don't understand. <laughs> we don't understand it. Um, but... Penguin Random House is going to launch a Penguin-branded consumer book site. 
Um, recently, the CEO of PRH said that they're not going to get into uh, – they're not going to be into subscriptions, so they're not going to be on Oyster or Scribd or anything like that. And they're not going to do retail online. They're not going to try to sell books online directly like HarperCollins has. Um, but apparently they're going to have a consumer-facing website in the fall. And they said this, this was in Britain, so they're using pounds. Um, we've invested millions of pounds in a new site that we're going to launch. Uh, what consumers tell us that they don't want to come to a website such as this, either discover books or to buy them. What they want to use the website for is to forge a bigger bond with authors. We mm. we see what we are going to do as forming the bridge between these two. Um, what Weldon said he expected the site to give PRH a real competitive advantage over other publishers. What? So what do you what do you make of that? What does that mean? <laughs> like what? Weldon did not elaborate further on the site's content. But what? Okay. Well, it so, says a, a bigger bond between authors and readers. So is that like interviews? Is that like well, authors what do you think? Classes? What do you think? It's I have no be? idea. But I, I'm I don't. I mean, the only thing I can think of is interviews or maybe like live chats, like how Goodreads does yeah, with authors. Maybe right. those live chats, authors writing content outside of their books. Yeah, maybe for the but. But unless you're a Penguin Random House super fan, which do those exist? I don't know. I don't think so. Would you go to a site like this just so you could interact with Penguin Random House authors? Is that what they're trying to do? I just don't – like there's just not enough information here for me to have Yeah, it's hard to say. My guess is it's a place to put all that sort of stuff we get pitched all the time to put on book rights. They're like, eh. Yeah, I don't want that. You know, another <laughs> interview author or a guest post or a list or a – you know, some st- or a cover reveal for a book we don't really know anything oh, about. You yeah. know, it could be stuff like that. I think there's a there's a grain of smartness here, and and that grain. And I think you and I, you know, we know this from working on the site. Is like some authors have like big rabid followings, mm-hmm. and on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram and their own blogs or whatever like that. Um, and to this point, the publishers have done a terrible job of harnessing that sort of bringing it all together and like pointing it at anything. I can see some version of this where, oh, I don't know. Who's a Random House author? Who's a big boy? Uh, I know. I'm so bad at like. Yeah, I am too. I think think John Green is technically Random House. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. But so let's say it's someone, if it's not Gene Green, uh, John Green, it's it's some it's somebody else because they got a billion authors at Random House. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're 50% of the trade market. Um, Let's say Tony Morrison, right? Random House yeah. author. Uh, if if Tony Morrison gave an exclusive interview there, or an excerpt from a book, or I don't know something, you know, some Tony Morrison thing, Tony Morrison fans would go check it out. And then I guess the hope would be that people who came to check it out would then follow them on Facebook or Twitter or RSS or email, so that you can start of like picking up some of their authors' fans to become fans of this site, and then use those fans to publicize the authors they don't know yet. But how would you get the word out about a thing on a Penguin Random House site, unless to people who don't follow you on social media already? Like you would have to yeah, be I assuming that outside sources are gonna. Talk about you, which isn't necessary. If I mean, that's were, not what happened with Bookish. If it were me, what I would do – no, it's not what happened. If it were me, what I would do is I'd have, say, John Green write something for the site and then tweet about it, get people there, and then try to get them to sign up to follow that site however that you want them to follow it. Yeah, Like sort does. of try to pick up some of those people. Um, and they've got a billion authors. 
Um, so I don't know, but the thing I don't get is once you get them there, what do you want? You, you're going to want them to find out a, bu- a book and then they're going to go buy it somewhere else, I guess. That's what you yeah. want. Like, cause they're not going to get into retail. Okay. Why? Well, I don't why understand. Why, why not? Is it that hard? It like must if people be hard. are going to be right there on your site, why wouldn't you give them the option to buy the book immediately? I don't understand. Yeah. I, I mean, I know that publishers have, uh, some conflicts of interest here because, you know, they, they partner with book change, independent bookstores, a lot of other places. And um, I've heard sort of through the grapevine that independent booksellers get mad when, like with HarperCollins, because they feel like they're taking their sales, right? That you're, you, now you're competing with me and you want me to carry your books. And to some degree, I understand with that. But if I'm the publisher and especially I'm picking a random house, like, what are you going to, you're not going to carry random house books, you're an independent bookstore, like, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. It seems to me like it wouldn't be that, that would be the, the natural move. Um, to do it this way, maybe they want to take some of the, maybe they want to take some of the juice from places like Goodreads. You know, maybe, but uh, I mean, can you <laughs> can you take juice from Goodreads at this point? And, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe you're maybe say rather than do that thing that live chat over at Goodreads, come do it on our site, or rather than doing your giveaway there, do it over here. Um, I, I don't know. That's just kind of what I. I'm wondering. I, I guess I guess they must be thinking of it as a big marketing opportunity, where you come find about you come to to uh, to learn about something about an author you already like, and you sort of get a contact high by reading about something else. I suppose um, is the idea. I mean, I, I doubt they're going to have advertising like outside. They're going to charge for advertising. They would just use it all for themselves. That's true. Um, I don't know. It just sounds like another thing that publishers are assuming readers know or care about the publisher itself yeah. or the imprint itself. And I just don't think that's the case. And it just sounds like another one of those things. Like, Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think if it were me, I wouldn't even make it Penguin branded. I would just call it something, you know, I make it some sort of book site that just happens to be, you know, Lithub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, Lithub, uh, um, uh, book, spin, shout. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, something like that. I mean, the, the other thing is these content sites like this, and we've seen this before, is that they get, they're a little hamstrung. Even PRH is a little hamstrung if they're only going to be writing and having PRH titles. Like it is 50% of the market, but that's only 50% of the market. Right. Um, so that's, that's tricky as well. Um, because, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to write about Harper Lee, right? Cause that's Harper Collins. Um, I guess, or maybe they, maybe they will have content about all books. I don't know. But if it's a real competitive advantage, you wouldn't think they're going to be throwing other publishers too much of a bone um, to put stuff there. So I'm going to keep an eye on it. So April 8th, I got LitHub to keep track of. And now I've got this um, penguin.org or whatever it's going to be. <laughs> whatever. Gonna, it's you know. interesting that Penguin's putting so much money in this and they refuse to do subscription yeah. services. Like the things that they choose to to put money into are fascinating. <laughs> it, does seem, it, does, it seems very strange. Why? Uh, like <laughs> HarperCollins and PRH seem to have diametrically opposed strategies when it comes to online stuff especially. Yeah. Um, interesting. I mean, I've said before, if I was Penguin Random House, I'd open a bookstore chain. That's what I would do. They've got those cute little trucks. <laughs> I know they've got the trucks are awesome, but they also like why why split the pig with Barnes and Noble? You know, have a bunch of retail chains. Don't just sell Penguin Random House books, but sell other people's books too. And then you'd get the data about who's buying them. Like what books are? I mean, you know, I don't know. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's what I would do. I'd actually, I think I've, I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, but I had this idea once. Like, if I was Penguin Random House, like I'm a multi. They're owned by Bertelsmann. They're a multi-billion-dollar company. I'd buy like 200 independent bookstores. And just run oh. them as like franchises. Let them keep their names. Let them keep locally owned and operated. But you want to keep them open, right? They're good for you. 
and you get all the data and the relationships and you can send your authors and anyway. Hmm. But, you know, it's either easy to spend other people's money. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's get to our next sponsor. Speaking of subscriptions, (laughs) Scribd. Scribd, uh, you know, it's a subscription book set. It's a subscription book service um, that gets unlimited access to ebooks, half a million ebooks and audiobooks. The audiobooks is something that's really super interesting. But you go to scribd.com slash bookwrite, you get started with a free month trial. And then after that, it's just $8.99 a month. But Scribd has books from some of the biggest publishers around, not PRH, but there you are. Yeah. Big houses like HarperCollins, Simon Schuster, HMH. You know, most of the other publishers are on board, the big ones, and a bunch of great small presses like McSweeney's Counterpoint and Tin House with a bunch of others. Another thing that's cool, too, is that they're starting to have more and more new releases. Um, this is a thing that's happening. You're seeing more and more books that are, like, new and hardcover. Like, even just a few weeks after they're released, you're going to get more and more access to new releases. Um, what, so one thing that, that we're doing with Scribd is uh, Rebecca has put together a list of 15 books that you can read on Scribd that we like and or have talked about. So I'm not going to give you the whole list because it's not avail- they're going to put up a page for us. We're going to link to it there. But it's just a couple you've heard us talk about. So one, you've heard us talk about James Salter over and over again. His best book, uh, well, well, we can argue about that, but his most famous <laughs> book, The Sport and a Pastime, is available on Scribd. Um, that's one that's really interesting. You can read Lumberjanes, Volume yes! 1. Which is a great. Uh, I I haven't read it yet, um, but I'm going to on script here eventually. Uh, it's a I've read it comic it's series. Great. You've read it. What's it? Yeah. Give me the pitch on Lumberjanes. Uh, it is about five young girls who are friends, who are best friends, and they are at summer camp, and they have various adventures that sometimes involve supernatural. Uh, beings and it's just it's just girls having fun and making a lot of funny historical and pop culture references <laughs> and it's uh, it's the best it's the best it's cool. so good um so that's available on there let's see a couple others i'll give you um a rogue by any other name by sarah mclean who has been a guest on reading lives and a lot of our book riot um staff and readership love her she's a romance writer she's a lot of fun um really smart um and great stuff she does there. And of course, I'd be remiss not to mention Angels and Demons by our friend Dan Brown, available on Scribd. <laughs> um, probably over the next couple of weeks, um, we'll have the page up where you can see all of our 15 of our picks. But that's just to give you a sample that, like, these are, you know, you can get some legitimate books that we talk about that you're going to be interested in checking out. Um, thanks so much to Scribd for sponsoring the show. Go to scribd.com. That's S C R I. B D, yes. I, get, I got it right. You did. Yeah, yeah I, can, I always feel like I'm going to do it. And uh, scribd.com/slash/bookriot. That'll tell them you came from us. Um, that'll get you that free month to try it out. Um, and if enough of you suckers, I mean uh, readers, <laughs> go over there and try that out, uh, they'll you know throw some more dollars at us, which we like. We like the dollars. Love it. Make it rain. <laughs> make, make it rain. All right, here we go. Uh, speaking of subscriptions, again, um, this is. Physical book subscriptions, and this is Faber, um, is getting into... Oh, I think I gave myself the wrong link. You did. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, I, th- I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not something I need the link to do necessarily, but Faber is a literary publisher mostly, and they're getting into a, a, a subscription service, not like Oyster or Scrib, but actual physical books, where... And they have a range of subscriptions all the way from sort of a zero, you just sign up with email that gives you some discounts on buying books to a 500 pound premium annual subscription where you get like special editions sent directly to you. 
Mm-hmm. And twenty five percent discount on all titles. On all titles, so they're like <clears throat> they're plugging into sort of a you know a real avid Faber um, imprint fan to do this. You know, again, do those exist? Those well, that's exist? that's what I'm kind of wondering. Like, we're living in a subscription world. Like, this is the thing that's happening more and more. Stitch Fix, Birchbox, you have our own quarterly box. Let's see, what are the other the other big ones? Um, Ipsy. Oh, it's one. yeah, right. Um, well, uh, Harry's, which has been a sponsor on this show, that's Razor Blades. Um, Bark Box, which is for dogs, uh, a whole bunch of different things like that. Everything, everyone's getting into it to some degree and trying it out. And I think it's good to try out. I think just for the the reason you say, I'm not so sure this is going to work. I mean, I don't know how many they need to make this work, but how many people are going to sign up to get books from only one imprint? You know, you're just committing to that. I don't know. That seems weird to me. I don't, mm, I mean, I wouldn't. The collector's editions, however, sound amazing. They do sound amazing. They do sound well. Powell's has a subscription called Indispensable, yes, which is first editions of literary fiction that are like special editions you can only get through Powell's. I think it's like 40 bucks, and they're um, beautiful and they uh, come they in are. like pretty, like cloth bound, yeah, box. they're really great. Really um, nice. and so they might do something like that. And you can't, you know, can't go buy single one offs, like you have to subscribe to get those. I think mm-hmm. it sounds like this will be the same way. So, I guess if you just have a lot of money to throw around and you want to make sure you get the new shiny, that's going to be it. But I, I don't feel like I, I can't think of an imprint I would do this for. Myself. I can't either. Oh, oh, now I want to find one. I mean, maybe, maybe Knopf. I like them a lot. Yeah, if it's not, yeah, Knopf, maybe. That, that would be close. FSG, maybe. If oh, there yeah. Was like a, I would do FSG. But FSG also does a lot of different stuff. It'll have to be like some, like, for me, it'd have to be even like more specific. Like, I'd like, I'd maybe do like FSG debut novelists because they do a lot of interesting oh, literary fiction and yeah. debut. So that might be something I'd cons- But let's, I wouldn't do it. Let's, who am I kidding? No, you wouldn't. I mean, you if don't I, do print anyway. I don't do well, not much. I only do like I do collector's edition print, but basically, like I get the new Marilyn Robinson, I get the new Toni Morrison, it just sits there and becomes part of you know my awesomeness. Um, <laughs> the atmosphere of your home, it matters. Yes. I think it matters. yeah, it matters to me, and who cares? Um, <laughs> if you don't like it, you don't have to come here. Uh, anyway, so, okay, but I want to I want to read what these printed these collector's editions because this is like book person audio porn right here okay yes oh yeah 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 have to read they're printed in yorkshire with a traditional lithographic method on a small sheet fed heidelberg Mm. press then they're hand sewn and quarter bound in cloth and have new jackets and end papers designed by in-house designers what that sounds super fancy i want all my books to be like that i want all my books to be hand sewn and quarter bound in cloth wow yeah that's really interesting um yeah, I mean, make it, make it, I mean, if you're going to do it, make it premium, I suppose, right? Yeah, that sounds premium. Th- that would be the way to do it. How much is it going to cost? Seems 50 like pounds gonna, each. 50 pounds each? Yep. That's what, like 75 bucks? What's a one and a half to one? It's, is it one and a half? I thought it was two. Yeah, okay, so between 75 and whatever, 100. Uh, yeah, something like that. That's, that is expensive. Um, Rebecca and I once were at a conference and we said, um, uh, you know, we we're talking about this, you know, what would you do? Like, what if you made something like, maybe like the Toni Morrison, where you made, maybe the hardcover was $40 and super fancy. Mm-hmm. And you capture like the heart, like I would go buy that. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm not sure I'd be thrilled about it, <laughs> but I would go buy it. But this is a way of trying to, you know, sort of get through um, and do some of that. So that's, that's something to watch out for. Um, again, it, maybe there are people that are just Faber nutheads and they're going to get a thousand of them and they're making, you know, 500,000 pounds a year. And that's not bad business as a piece of it. But, uh, 
you know, there's a lot of work involved in getting those things commissioned and distributed. And I don't know, it's, it's a curious move to do it that way, it seems to me. Okay. All right. Oh, you, this is this where this is the the story you were most excited about. Yeah, I love this. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, why don't okay, you walk, so, walk us through it? <laughs> so, forensic anthropologists in Spain are claiming that they have found the quote scare quotes apparent remains of Cervantes underneath a monastery the, in Madrid. The man himself. Yeah, who I did not know was missing. So there's that. I'm sorry. It's so hard to keep track of everyone's bones. You know. It's fine, no. whatever. So apparently he died in 1616, mm-hmm. uh, like a day before Shakespeare, which right. I think is really interesting. It's like a Thomas Jefferson, John Adams of literature situation where they died like the same time. Anyway, uh, so he died in 1616 and was buried underneath this convent per his own request because the convent ransomed him when he was captured by pirates. I just love this story so yes. much. Can you tell? I just love it so hard. So he wanted to be buried underneath the convent. So he's buried underneath the convent and then they lost him. Yeah. Like, the, it was torn down in the 18th century and rebuilt, and at that time, the exact location of his remains were lost, and now they think they have figured out where he was, like, shoved up against a wall, buried in the floor. Well, he also has he's also has an injured arm, which makes him, I guess, easier to identify. I'm not sure if it's mentioned in this, but in that same, in that same mm-hmm. um, adventure where he got captured by pirates, like, literally <laughs> captured by pirates, yes. he was... Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. He got injured in a bar brawl, I think. That's where his arm no, was. No, no, it, it was a battle. It was like oh, a it was naval, a battle, okay. Because he also he got shot. into a bar brawl. He was shot. And yeah. so that's one way... Um, but, you know, actually, I was reading... It's interesting. These medieval... Well, is this medieval? Kind of not really. I mean, it's 16th century... Uh, early 17th century, excuse me. But burying people was a real problem. Um, and they would get, you know, these churchyards and crypts would get just stuffed with people. Um, and so it became a really difficult problem to find places for them. And they'd get buried, you know, put they'd be stacked like six deep or put all in the same coffin and all these different kinds of things. So um, I'm not actually that surprised that it was that his bones were lost. I'm... Because they, they didn't have a Westminster Abbey. I don't think Spain sure. has a, an equivalent there of where they, you know, sort of kept Isaac Newton and other people and put them uh-huh. to the side. The um, but, yeah, that is that is really – it's also, God, 500 years ago. Um, it's so weird that it's it, it's so long ago and we can, like, find his body. It seems weird. There's something very weird to me about it. I, I it don't really so- know. No, it's so strange. Yeah. And so they haven't done any DNA testing yet. So they don't actually know. But how do they but sure. what are they going to test it against? I don't know. Does the he other have part known, of his body that they have out there or does something? Does he have known relatives? Or is that, it, like I, is it that diluted after all of that time? Does you it know what matter? we've got here? We've got a Dan Brown pitch here. We've got a Dan, we've got a Dan, we've got Finding Cervantes, the next Dan Brown novel. And there's like <laughs> there's like some like Knights Templar thing that has to do with he had some code and you know like on his injured hand, there was some code about something or other. Um, yeah, really interesting. Um, so they think that they've identified him correctly because he's buried. He was buried with his wife and a couple of other people. Oh, okay. And so they, the forensic scientists are saying, well, we found him and we know it's him because he's been buried with his wife and look at all these bones, but we haven't done DNA testing to confirm any of it. So really we just found like a pile of people <laughs> yeah. that are kind of in the right spot. And so we're just going to... We're going to go with it. We're going to go with it. You know what? 
I think also um, Cervantes himself would appreciate this. This is very much a Don Quixote story. <laughs> it is. Of like, well, this may or may not be the right body, but we're going to honor it anyway. You know, this is the golden helmet of Sembrino. <laughs> it's really just a shaving dish. But you know what? It's going to be special because we're going to say it's going to be special. Um, and they said, you know, in terms of literary history, it's not really going to mean much. Like they're not going to find like a lost manuscript in his pelvis or something like that. Right. Um, but, you know, it'll be a tourist attraction, you know, People, if I, if I happen to be there, I'd go take a look. Oh, yeah, totally. And it's it's interesting that they found him the year, like next year, 2016, will be the 400th. I was wondering about that too. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be like, oh, that cynical person, but I guess the generous reading is maybe because of the anniversary, they were like, well, let's go take a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the ungenerous reading was, let's find some bones we can call Cervantes. There's got to be some piles under here, right? (laughs) The maybe bones of the rider of Don Quixote now on display. So I guess they're going to build him a new tomb at that same convent because he super loved the convent. Yeah. And rebury this person who may or may not be Cervantes. But I like to think he is. (sighs) I'm trying to think. I wonder who them. That shortens the list of the famous people, the famous writers we don't know where they're buried list. Do you have that list like in your head? Well, you know, you've got things like uh, I think I think like Dante. Ambrose? I think Dante's missing. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Well, you know, in Homer, you know, it's like, well, did well, he yeah. exist? Um, you know, things like Sophocles and people from uh, antiquity. But I think there are a few like there's some English authors, not like the big ones, but some of the more um, um, yeah, mid- mid-list wasn't even appropriate, but like a sort of second tier <laughs> English authors that, you know, got put in these big graves or like, you know, or in the catacombs in Paris. I'm sure there's some authors down there when they moved Who's out. Who's that author who got, who like ran away to New Mexico and was missing? Oh, from- Ambrose Bierce. Yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah, don't know yeah. Ambrose Bierce is. No way. <laughs> uh, yeah, Where'd went, that guy go? Yeah, Ambrose Bierce is, uh, is under a cactus somewhere in uh, Mexico. Um, but anyway, so I guess, I guess this is, this is an interesting story. It'll be a good pilgrimage site, a literary pilgrimage site, yeah, if you're ever, ever in Madrid. Yeah, book Riot Retreat. Oh, Book Riot Live Madrid. Yeah. Now you're talking. Totally go visit Cervantes. Yeah, we we'll go see the maybe, maybe Cervantes. <laughs> That's what we could call. He's Cervantes-ish. <laughs> Cervantes dot 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 question mark? Yeah. The Cervantes-ish skeleton. It's reasonable. It could be Cervantes. Uh, anyway... So that that was a everyone a lot of people were interested in that story and I, I understand so but it is weird it's like yeah I, I guess we'll you know what we'll follow up on the podcast when we get a DNA match uh, yeah <laughs> if we get one if we get one yeah I don't I don't know where do you go for uh, I guess if you can get dinosaur DNA you could probably scrounge up some Cervantes uh, DNA I don't know you'd have like just put an ad on Craigslist anyone know anybody <laughs> related to Cervantes and you just take their word for it. Yeah. <laughs> They're also Cervantes-ish. <laughs> dot, 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 question mark. <laughs> All right. Before we get to new books, let's do our last sponsor. Uh, we are Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it easy to make a beautiful, professional website. Uh, here's the thing. Making websites is hard. You and I both made our own blog way back in the day. We did. Did you use – what did you use? Blogspot? You I did too, Blogspot. right? Yeah. yeah. We both used Blogspot, which – it worked, but it was hard to make look good, and it was hard to keep up with. Not a lot of features. You had to get, like, sketchy plugins to, like, do other stuff. You remember those days? <laughs> yeah. Like, to do a blog roll or your Twitter feed or something else and like that. And it looked that. so amateurish. It looked so, yeah. It, looked, it just it gave me the heebie-jeebies just to use it. <laughs> but, but if there had been Squarespace back then, I think I would have paid my 8 bucks a month to get a full-featured 
online solution to making a really great and professional looking website, even if you're not a professional designer or a professional at all. Um, 24-7 live chat and email, $8 a month. And if you get a free domain, if you sign up for the year, so that's your, um, that's your uh, maybe CervantesBones.net. If you're huh. going to sort of write a, a you know a conspiracy theory blog about the bones of Miguel de Cervantes, the other thing that was super hard we didn't really have to think about this much because you know people didn't have I think iPads were just new and we weren't really reading blogs on our phones that much but you would a little bit and our blogs looked terrible on our phones yeah so mm-hmm. hard to read and you know you couldn't see the widgets but one thing that Squarespace templates do so you get these ready made templates that sort of the the skeleton, uh, forgive the pun, given the, it's not really a pun, it's just a stupid joke. Um, <laughs> and it gives you the, the out, I guess, the structure. And it's responsive so that it looks good on a phone, on a tablet, on a 13-inch uh, laptop, on a 27-inch um, desktop. That all is going to look really great. So you don't have to worry about, like, can people read everything they need to see or what I have to move here if, to have it look good on the phone. These templates automatically resize and rearrange themselves because they know what device um, someone's using to look at the site and it, it adjusts accordingly. That's really cool. Commerce, every website comes with a free online store that's baked into the pie. You can do credit card processing and sell digital goods or collect the information to send someone something you need. A lot of people maybe just need like a one-page web presence. You know, probably what we should do with business cards is like give someone a business card that's just an address to a website that everyone can find anything else we want about that. So if you're going to use sort of like a digital resume or a cover sheet, you can do these simple one-page splash pages that gives you contact information and, you know, maybe some brief information about you. You can start a trial, no credit card required. You get, um, you can try out all the tools, see how it is. And if you use offer code RIOT, you get 10% off your first purchase. Shows your support for the show. Again, the same deal that you came from us. They'll give us more dollars. Thank you to Squarespace for supporting the show. Seriously, if you have a web project, you're thinking about doing it. Blogs, portfolios, galleries, online stores, resumes, um, any, you know, really, really most things that individuals or even small businesses or even medium-sized businesses would need to do, you can do with Squarespace. All right. It's new books time. New books. Um, tell me about Housefrau, the book that everyone seems to be talking about right now. They are talking about. Okay, Housefrau is by Jill Alexander S. Baum. This is out from Random House uh, last week, March 17th. And this, I have, I am mid Housefrau. Okay. Mid Housefrau. Um, it is about Anna Benz, who is an American woman in her late 30s. She lives uh, with her Swiss husband and their three kids in Zurich. They have a very comfortable middle-class kind of life, but Anna is very unhappy, and she's bored, and she's lonely, and she's a liar and a horrible person, which makes this super fascinating. Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah. Um, So you follow Anna as she tries to deal with her boredom by having a series of increasingly more disturbing affairs that she enters into with, like, complete ease, and then her life starts to spin out of control as it does and uh, so you kind of like follow her sort of downward smile. It's very Madame Bovary-ish, except Anna is completely aware of what she's doing. Whereas I feel like with Madame Bovary, she was like, you know, la, 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 going along with fate or whatever. Mm. But but Anna is um, very self-aware. And it's just really fascinating. Like you follow her through her. She takes some German language classes and um, she goes through psychoanalysis. And so you're there listening to her like lie to her therapist, which is a really weird situation uh. to be in as a reader. And, oh, it's just there's a lot of tension of every kind. And it's it's an experience, house row. So go read it. 
cool. Yeah, I love uh, an unlikable. Yeah, it's sort of it's narrator. like a it's like a it's like a spin on Madame Bovary, sort of. It sounds like. Sorry, yeah, people have been calling it Madame Bovary meets Fifty Shades of Grey, which is one hundred percent inaccurate. There's nothing <laughs> like she is not a virgin with a billionaire. Right. No, like this is just a, a is it mother. There, is there some sexy times? Is it? Is that why? Well, yeah, I mean, she has a bunch of affairs. Right. But it's not. But so did Madame Bovary. Yeah, but it's not. They're, they're, the affairs are not there to titillate you. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. they're there as a means through which she explores marriage and fidelity and boredom and loneliness and all of that stuff. I so, see. Interesting. Yeah. It reminds me more of like uh, The Woman Upstairs that Claire I was just going to say that. Book. It sounds like more like it's The Woman Upstairs meets uh, Madame yeah, Bovary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just very angry, bored woman. Hausfrau is uh, German for housewife, for those yeah. of you um, keeping score at home. <laughs> uh, all right. Second book pick, uh, Hammerhead by Nina McLaughlin. Um, which is a book a lot. I, this one started, we started to hear rumblings of it among our book riot writer core for a while now, and it's finally out um, from Norton. So Nina McLaughlin, she was a classics major undergrad. She went into the journalism business and, you know, was working a desk job. Um, and then one day she started unhappy with her job and she kind of on a whim answered a Craigslist ad for a cart to learn to be a carpenter. Um, and Hammerhead is the story of her, transitioning from the the life of working at a desk to working with her hands and being a carpenter. Um, she's super erudite. She's well-read. She's really smart and funny and thoughtful. There's a lot of literary references. She talks about um, Ovid and uh, a bunch of other writers here. She was a guest um, on the Reading Lives podcast, the most recent one that's just uh, – no, I'm sorry – the one that the most current one right now, but by the time you're listening to this, there'll be another one. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's a really interesting, thoughtful memoir um, about work um, and life and identity. And um, we liked it so much that we had her on the show and we're talking about it here, but we're also sponsoring an event that she's going to be at Word Bookstores uh, here in Brooklyn, New York on March 25th. So that's tomorrow. Yeah, 7 p.m. So if you're around and you're interested in that, um, you should go check that out. She's really great and interesting. And uh, I'll drop a link to that event and to the Reading Lives episode, which was really great to have her along there. And I guess that's our show, Amanda. That's it. It always goes so fast. Oh, it feels like <laughs> we don't have enough time to talk about whether or not these are the bones of Miguel de Cervantes. <laughs> I will make the time. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of what authors I'd like just go look at their bones, you know, just like go to a go look at their crypt or whatever. I would love to do that. What is, I think it's in. Paris, where Oscar Wilde is buried. Yes. But they don't let you kiss it anymore. And but I know how that was like kind of dirty. That was a thing, right? Yeah. It yeah. was a people made pilgrimages to Paris to go put some lipstick on Oscar Wilde. Well, there's like whole tours of the main um, cemetery in Paris. You know, there's a jillion famous people. You I'd like to see pour that. one out, some gin on Gatsby's grave. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. Twain. Um, go see him somewhere. I don't, he's probably buried in uh, Massachusetts up there, I would think. Um, I was around here somewhere. Baltimore? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those are good ones. You know, like, was Jane Austen just buried in, like, you know, the country churchyard somewhere? Probably. I have no idea. Hmm. 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 <laughs> maybe, that's a, maybe we can get, we can, maybe you can strong arm someone in writing a post about, you know, the graves of famous people. Like I have. That. I already have. Well, you did? I did? It was years ago, like, when we first started. You did one? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll put, I'll find that. I'll okay. find that. I didn't want to take a look at that. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much to Scribd to Squarespace for Random House Audio for sponsoring the show Book Riot Live tickets you can find out more about the event I should have said this before bookriotlive.com um, as always you can find show notes to this show and the notes for back episodes at bookriot.com slash podcast give us an email if you want to ask us a question 
Everything is askable. That doesn't mean we'll answer everything. <laughs> uh, email, email us at podcastofbookriot.com. You can follow Amanda at I'm Amanda Nelson. I am A M A N D A N E L S O N. You can follow me at the Jeff O'Neill. We're all both you and I, especially, are checking the Book Riot Twitter feed. Like we follow that. Um, so if you want to just follow us on Twitter at Book Riot, you will find us in some way, shape, or form. We'll eventually talk to one we'll of us. Ev- <laughs> eventually, it might be sort of. Um, uh, uh, ambiguous who you're talking to, but it's like probably 50% Amanda and 30% maybe me and then Callie and some other Callie, random yeah. people uh, sprinkled in there as well. Thanks so much, Amanda. And we'll talk to you soon, everyone. I hope by the next time we've talked to you, I will not have spring depression and it'll just be regular spring elation. Um, <laughs> all right. Bye, everybody. Bye.